Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, March 15th, 2021. Yes, it is the Ides of March, and I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. And with me, as always, uh, Cassius with the lean and hungry look, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. I don't know if I can keep this going. Uh, (laughs) Noble Casca, (laughs) associate editor Noah Rothman. Salway, John. <laughs> and uh, I better get Cleopatra. I want Cleopatra. Cal- Calpurnia. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> Cal- you know, like noblest of uh, noblest of women. All right, all right. I'll take Caesar's it. wife, right? <laughs> uh, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Well, uh, so um, Christine, uh, this weekend uh, for the first time in her life. Um, you know, did I think the thing that uh, liberals tell us is 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 the sole purpose of democracy, really, which is to be able to protest. Um, that's really all it is, you know, is protest and you know being out demonstrating. Uh, you know, it's the beauty and glory of freedom. So you were out protesting. Yes, this really is the first protest I've ever attended. And I only caught the last few minutes, you know, the last last bit of it. And I stood off to the side. So I, I'm definitely still not embracing this protester role as a temperamentally as a conservative. I don't like crowds. I don't like mobs. I'm, I, it's not for me. But the protest was organized by parents who want to see their schools reopen. Public school parents in D.C. who were joined by public school parents in New York City and in San Francisco and, and, um, and in some of the suburban counties around D.C. that are also still not open organized. Um, by Open Schools, which uh, which is a sort of nationwide movement at this point. And also, I will add, because we're very hard on teachers and teachers unions on this show, I think um, correctly, uh, Teachers for Open Schools was also part of this movement. These are the teachers who actually do want to get back in a classroom and feel it's safe. And it was just a a protest outside uh, Mayor Muriel Bowser's offices downtown saying, you know, we we virtual school is not working. It's not working for most kids. Um, we need to be back in the classroom. It's now safe to be back in the classroom. We need to get rid of the six foot distance rule, which was entirely arbitrary. And we, with, with precautions in place, there's no reason kids shouldn't be back in the classroom. Uh, I was, I was sparked by rage to go to this because one of my kids' high schools just announced with no explanation, no justification that we won't be returning to school at all this year. So it'll be a full calendar year plus last spring that one of my kids will have never set foot in a classroom. So there are a lot of angry and upset parents. A lot of kids spoke at the rally and talked about how weird it was that they'd never seen their teachers, some of the elementary school kids in particular. It was sort of heartbreaking to hear them talk about struggling to get through their lessons. And um, of course, in typical DC fashion, it quickly became about race and social media responses to some of the things that were posted online were all, oh, it's mainly white kids. It's mainly white kids. And I just want to point out that A, that's not true. B, at all of these rallies, it was a mixed race group of parents. And the whole point of this is that the most vulnerable kids, at least here in DC, who need to be back in the classroom the most are actually the minority kids. They're the ones struggling. They're the ones who are most behind. We now have data about that. That's that's kind of horrifying. So this is, people have had it. And um, I was glad to see people turn out. I don't know what this will mean for most of us for the rest of this school year, but I think it sends a very clear message about next fall, which is that it should be five days a week in person, in the classroom, should be the default for schools. It should not be an option at where virtual is the default. That needs to needs to change. So You wrote about this for the blog. It's up on the blog right now. You should take a look at that piece because it's uh, very affecting. And, uh, and raging. Really, <laughs> excuse me. Really that's commentarymagazine.com where we give you a few free reads and ask you to subscribe. And later today, the contents of our April issue will be fully uh, available for your perusal and review as a subscriber. But you also wrote briefly, uh, Christine, about some practices elsewhere. First of all, these protests were all over the country in cities like New York and San Francisco and apparently pretty well attended. But you had a detail in this piece that I found pretty shocking about the uh, Chicago teachers unions. Um, yeah, this this was a story that emerged over the weekend. You know, the Chicago teachers unions have been among the vanguard of teachers refusing to ever return to a classroom ever because I guess they cite all kinds of things, including structural racism for some reason. But the mo- the most recent stunt is that after demanding that they'd be given priority for vaccination, they were being sent emails by the school system allowing them to check, hit a link and then schedule their vaccination appointments. And if they've already been vaccinated, to let the school system know, because the school system's trying to figure out how many teachers have been vaccinated and can safely get them back to the classroom. The Chicago Teachers Union sent out a note saying, you know what, don't click on that link. 
Because if you do, then they'll know that you're vaccinated or then you might get vaccinated and then you're not going to be able to have the same accommodations is what they called them, by which they meant you won't be able to sit at home and refuse to go to the classroom anymore. It was shocking. It's a shocking little local news story. I put a link in there to it. It's uh, people should read it because this is no longer about safety. It is no longer about kids. It's about power. And the unions in particular have been exercising and exerting their will over these uh, school systems for far too long. There were two theories that governed the shutdown of the school system, uh, or three. One of them uh, was a kind of uh, atavistic response before we knew anything about the virus, which is that, of course, uh, you, you imagine there's a, a pandemic and kids are going to be uniquely affected or affected uh, worse because they have not fully developed immune systems. And it turns out that for whatever mir- miraculous reason, that that was not true, right? So A, the first thing you got to do is close down the schools because kids are going to die. So that turned out not to be the case in relatively short order. Uh, then there was, um, you need to shut down the schools because teachers are going to be at risk and the adults in the schools are going to be at risk because the kids don't get it, but they might spread it. The adults will be together and, you know, unless you, uh, because uh, it's impossible in, you know, in a lot of these places to do social distancing, six feet, whatever, then you, you've got to keep them closed. And then the third, uh, and and we now know that this to be also uh, a problematic analysis of the situation, uh, particularly if you can keep windows open, for example, uh, stuff like that. And because, um, you know, like my kids have been at school uh, and it's a private school and they manage somehow to keep windows open and make all sorts of arrangements. And the third, which I think is the most interesting because it is the one that is the actual socio sociological or whatever you want to call it reason why you have to do this in general, that is now totally, the science has now totally disproven is schools will be a, will be the progenitor of community spread that um, because people come from all over into one place and they're they're congregating inside a building and all of this that that this is how because that's a unique location for this this is how it will spread like wildfire everywhere and that we know is not true particularly with kids and all that so now we have three different interlocking reasons that schools closed that it turned out were understandable in the early going as a kind of uh, protection against a, you know, against something becoming, you know, spreading by the millions, but that we have known in some cases since the summer and in other cases since the fall was simply not true or did not uh, follow the, follow the model. And here we are, and yet we are still acting, including uh, the, of course, saint Dr. Fauci is still kind of acting as though this is true. Like we don't, we're still doing studies on three feet. We're still doing studies on whether or not the, you know, the social distancing has to be six feet or three feet. Um, There are studies. There have been studies. There are many studies. But uh, this this bias toward keeping things closed because you don't know how dangerous it's going to be, how how dangerous it's going to be to keep them open when many school systems in the United States never closed. Yeah, studies is the wrong word for it because studies implies a control group and uh, methodological standards that are uh, you know observed across the board. We're not doing studies; we're doing experiments. We're experimenting with three feet in live schools, with live children. And we're observing those results. So we're not studying anything. These are being implemented in the real world. And if it was so terrible and so risky, we wouldn't be experimenting with children's lives. So so th- this gets to a, slight, a different psychological point. We, we, we hit on, uh, dealt with a little bit on, on Friday. But, but, there is this feeling abroad that to uh, relent on on um, lockdown standards or certain types of more aggressive standards, um, I think it's a feeling, and it may be unconscious or not really, but that um, 
that will mean that everything that everybody did over the course of the, they will be somehow acknowledging that everything they did over the course of last year was pointless and that they, we, we subjected ourselves to this kind of uh, social torture for no good reason that we were foolish, that we were stupid, that we, we were panicked and all of this. And I don't really believe that that is the case. Um, but, uh, that I think people are so worried that they will feel this way in some sense, or that they will, that this will, that they, that they want to stay sort of locked down to the extent possible because it will justify the past year. Can, can I exemplify that? Cause we had this piece in Axios today headlined Florida's pandemic response gets a second look from national media media figures that heap scorn all over Ron DeSantis and Democrats who did the same saying he was going to wade through, you know, a, a sea of corpses on his way to just keeping businesses and schools open. Well, maybe he did the right thing, right? A couple of paragraphs later, you get to the bottom, uh, titled Our Thought Bubble. We've long known that the state's pro-business Republican leadership was making a sort of grand bargain, that the death toll was the price paid for keeping commerce flowing and kids in school. And then it's just like kind of, it's a Rorschach test. However you feel about the state is how you feel about reopening in general. No, it's not. That's not the conclusion that any sentient reader of this piece would be would, would draw on their own. And Axios felt that that was not a good thing, that we couldn't have you draw the, the inevitable conclusion that would result from their reporting. So they had to hold you by the hand and draw you to the conclusion that they prefer, which is only and exclusively, John, as you said, sort of a psychological comfort blanket to justify retroactively everything that we've done in the last year, which uh, this article demonstrates probably wasn't the best course. Well, look, Florida, I'm sorry. But it just brings up that there is such a huge um, partisan dimension to this that the early, and it goes back to Trump, of course, that, you know, fairly early in the pandemic, Trump what came out on the bullish side of reopening um, well in advance of a lot of Democrat. I mean, the Democrats still aren't there, but well in advance of a lot of public health officials and, and whomever else. And that sort of set the sides in stone. And so regard, so it's funny because we keep saying it, this is understandable early on. That was understandable early on. These mistakes were made early on, but Nothing has caught up since then because the politics of it haven't changed since then. The politics of it are set in stone, which is to say, if you want to reopen, you are a Republican who is, as, as Noah quotes the Axios article, you know, trading lives for commerce. Uh, and if you want to shut down, then you are stay shut. Then you are a, a pro-science Democrat and a humanitarian. Well, and I and I think to add to that, that's exactly right, because it puts and it's put the Biden administration several times, as we've noted, in a really difficult spot, right? Because the science starts moving in the direction of saying, you know, it's safe to do X, Y and Z, including open schools. They kind of talk the talk a little bit like, oh, yeah, this is great. Biden says we got it. We got to really work hard to reopen schools. But behind the scenes, they're doing nothing to, to actually bring the pain to the teachers unions because they need them in, in two years to, you know, next year to vote for them. They need the they need the support of these interest groups. And they are kind of playing a weird wink, wink game with them, with them. And I think what the demonstrations by parents this weekend showed and what a lot of the pushback from leaders like DeSantis have showed is that you're not, they're not going to continue to be able to do that, right? Because they're, they're saying one thing and the facts on the ground are quite different. And that kind of hypocrisy is going to catch up with them eventually, maybe not next year, but in two years. I mean, Florida did not have a laissez-faire approach, right? Florida did something that arguably was what uh, people who want contact tracing and stuff like that kind of did. I mean, there was a form of social profiling going on, which is to say that the Florida decision was to isolate the elderly. It was elderly, if, they, if they're in hospitals, they can't be visited. If they are at nursing homes, they cannot be visited. They need to be, you know... Uh, kept isolated and apart from each other and from others to get through this period. And so if they are also the spreaders of the virus, they need to remain isolated. That's a kind of weird version of the South Korea system, uh, which was a social profiling of people who had corona. 
or or have viruses like they were they were put they were told they had to leave they couldn't leave their apartment apps followed them if they went out of a certain range the things beeped and they couldn't do that supposedly in Wuhan they were they were soldering people into their apartments with blowtorches um so this is a kind of weird this was a this was a version of that which was most of the people that i knew who knew a lot about this said well this is the best way to handle it but you know our civil libertarian system doesn't really allow this to happen whereas like you know that you can you know track people individually so we don't have that but you could say if you're over 65 or over 70 and you're in any kind you know people should not come to visit you horrible though that may be so that was the hobson's <clears throat> choice that florida made that was arguably kind of a more was more along the lines of the authoritarian measures that people resisted in the United States on the grounds that they could never they could never pull them off. So, and I just want to say something because the way the mainstream media talks about what they assume Floridians heard and did during this pandemic, because the media dislikes Ron DeSantis because he's a successful Republican. My, so, my dad's eighty, lives in Florida. He is very cranky, libertarianish guy. He clearly got the message at 80 that it was better for him to stay home to he avoided the grocery store, he avoided all the places that as a as a, you know, nice retiree, he would otherwise go. And he doesn't like the government or the state at all. But he was like, eh, you know, it's a pandemic, whatever. And that actually was the attitude. However, if you want to go take a stroll outside with no one else around, you don't have to have a mask on for that. There was something actually kind of commonsensical about a lot of the reactions of Floridians. And now, yes, that's one anecdote in my family. But when you'd see these pictures of people on the beaches keeping distance, walking, enjoying some sunshine and fresh air without a mask on, that the mainstream media was basically like, look at these fools. They're going to kill us all. That's not the attitude of the people who were in Florida. They were, for the most part, they were fairly responsible. And you can see that in the numbers. You know, there's, there's a, a lot of good cover. There's a lot of good coverage and a lot of great conversation on today's, on the podcast, today's first sponsor, Dan Senor's Post-Corona, the new show, which you can get at uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever. Uh, his first show, uh, this week's show, is with Maggie Haberman of the New York Times, and they discuss the political futures of Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, and Andrew Cuomo, uh, whom uh, Maggie has uh, uh, covered and watched for more than twenty-five years uh, as a as a as a journalist in in New York City, who cut her teeth as a copy kid at the New York Post, which is where I first met her almost 30 years ago. Um, it's, uh, it's a really fantastic political discussion, and it gets into some of the, the interesting uh, twists and turns of the politics of the pandemic uh, and her close study of Donald Trump and the, and the, and the reasons that he uh, was unable to take advantage political advantage of uh the pandemic in a way that would have made his current claim which is that he responsible for operation warp speed should get the lion's share of the credit for the for for people uh getting the vaccine uh that his own rhetoric and sent and words and behavior uh undercut his ability to claim the kind of credit that he might otherwise uh get or deserve for that. So that is Dan Senor's post Corona with Maggie Haberman this week. Uh, you can uh, go back and fill and listen to Neil Ferguson, uh, Billy Bean. You could listen to me. You could listen to Raihan Salam of the Manhattan Institute. All talk about what America is going to be like when this damnable period is over. So go to your podcast uh, provider and, and subscribe to Dan Senor's post corona so um the the fact that people sort of understood what to do and got the message about what to do even if they were cranky libertarians and all of that uh informs this whole conversation going forward uh which is uh there's been a kind of public focus on the more extreme examples of people who couldn't handle the demands that were being made on them to sort of um, to restrict their own personal behavior socially uh, during the pandemic. 
And then there's everybody else, let's say most people in the middle who wherever they lived or however they did it, they sort of they they followed the they followed the rules to the extent that they could or to the extent possible. Um and and that's when we get into this question of whether or not the um the Biden administration and Fauci and all and and the the remaining mood of pensive uh I don't know. We're still in the second act. You know, we're not near where, you know, the climax is not coming and we don't know. There'll be some other, you know, mysterious, horrible developments. Abe, you. uh... Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like uh, it's funny after the press, you know, uh, uh, resoundingly announced that Biden had offered the country hope, um, even though, as we pointed out on the podcast, his his uh, address didn't really play that way uh, to us. Um, Fauci went out on like a, a sort of like a, a scare, a scare run over the weekend, you know, um, so, much, so much for the hope. He was, you know, he was talking about how um, uh, he's, it's a bad idea that the states are pulling back on lockdowns and restrictions because this was his, this was the reasoning that I thought was very interesting and worth getting into a little bit. He said, we've seen before, that when we plateau at a high number, in other words, when cases plateau but are still sort of high, um, that we that they rocket back up. Um, this is true in a way, but to put it all in context, we've also seen that when cases plateau at a very low number, they rocket back up as well. Um, in fact, that's what preceded the the last huge wave, uh, not just here but all over the world in places like Israel, where where cases were brought down to, you know, barely perceptible levels, then they, then they rocketed back up. So, so the point is that, yes, there, there can always be another surge. Um, so should we therefore never really bother to open up? We can, we can always lie in wait and protect ourselves or, or think we can against this next surge. And, you know, he's, we've gone to the well too many times on the, if we just, we're this close if we just pull it out now, we're, you know, two weeks to control the spread, one month of wearing masks, you know, Fauci saying, we're this close, we have the the the, the vaccines are out there, they're circulating, we're this close, we, well, let's not blow it now. We've heard it too many times. Yeah, I mean, I I think the, the thing that is so uh, annoying about this and you, we can express frustration. You can't blame Fauci for the fact that pandemics and you know viral spread is what it is, and all of that. And you know, don't blame the messenger. But what's the difference between where we are now and where we are where we were in November, or October? Well, I can tell you there are like four or five different things. One of which is that it was getting colder. It was getting colder. One of the reasons that Florida didn't go as badly as some of the other states is that it's a very warm state, and viruses don't last aren't aren't great in heat. Right. So uh, the, some of the summer numbers that other people saw, even while other people were d- descending in numbers because it was summer, you know, Florida was Florida. Uh, I couldn't say took advantage, but, you know, there it was fortunate to be where it was. So now it's getting warmer, number one. So depending on what happens in April and May and June, if we have a warm spring, that'll be good. And then secondly, a lot of people got Corona you know, or have and have antibodies or whatever in their systems. And now we have, I don't know what it is, 30, I can't tell from some of these numbers, we're somewhere in the 20% or 30% close to people who have been vaccinated have at least one shot in the United States. You combine all of these things, and this is where we may not be approaching herd immunity, but like the the notion that the that the cases that the entire body of, of the body politic of the United States remains unprotected, and that spread can simply go wherever it wants to, whenever it wants to, in whatever way, is not true. And Fauci is acting like it's true. I mean, over that, the weekend yeah. on Friday, actually, we reached the point that the Biden administration had set for itself initially as a success. A hundred million vaccine doses were distributed. First doses, second doses, what have you, doses have been distributed to the uh, general population. We're now at, according to the New York Times data estimates, we're now at 21% of the public 
has been vaccinated in some form, first or second doses. And research is increasingly suggesting that, at least for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, that the first dose after four weeks is pretty good, um, which Fauci Inesha, apparently has been lobbying the administration against saying, because God forbid, you know the actual data. Um, but at its current pace, based on projections, we will reach 50% of the public being vaccinated in some form by May 15th, 70% by June 27th. And this is in part informed by the fact that we had this astronomical amount of doses delivered on Saturday. It was something that was like 4.5 million, which we haven't even approached. And yet the, yesterday it fell off somewhat. So it's a, maybe a bad baseline. But nevertheless, 50, 70% by the middle of summer, early summer, there's no logic that suggests that we should maintain this footing based on that level of immunity. Well, yeah, and, but you, and, who knows what happens between now and then, Noah? Well, but what are you, what, what are you trying but, to kill people? You're well, trying why... to kill people. You're a super spreader. This podcast is a super spreader event. And you know what? Everyone who listens will deserve to get it and die. So this is, but this is where Fauci becomes like, for a while he was like, you know, a saint because he was warning us and telling us this difficult information and helping us through this time. Then it became sort of this weird, like cartoon villain. But at this point, he's literally Count Chocula. He's like a serial villain. It's so ridiculous. He keeps coming out with his cape and like, you know, trying to spread fear. And it's not, I'm with Abe. Like I'm, I've stopped listening to it. And I think that what we should be, the responsible thing now for both public health officials and the Biden administration to be saying is, now let's start planning for the fall for schools. Let's start planning about what we can use this summer to really build back better, to do all the stuff that we know we need to do to recover, to get businesses back up and running, to get kids at camp, to get you know parents back at work as much as possible, to figure out how what the new reality is going to look like so that when the school year starts, for example, everyone's ready. Because last year, last summer, I think there was a lot more uncertainty for people the really smart, thoughtful uh, school groups and private schools that that took the science seriously found a way to reopen last fall. But there is no excuse for businesses and, um, you know, pro business providers, people who are really struggling right now, even after they get their checks, are going to still be struggling in the future if we don't get the country back up and running. And that's what the focus should be now. And that's not downplaying any potential danger. That's looking forward and hopefully forward. So uh, in terms of looking forward, you need to look forward when you're trying to figure out how best to manage and invest your money. And that's why you want to take uh, the uh, advice, uh, opinions, and research of the Bonson Group uh, to your bosom when you are considering how best to look at the future of the United States, its economy, uh uh, its workforce and the uh, investment opportunities that are provided by uh, the unprecedented situation that we find ourselves in. The Bonson Group, uh, two products, the dctoday.com, a daily uh, internet newsletter, and dividendcafe.com, a weekly internet newsletter that delve deeply into the uh, intersection of politics and policy uh, with uncommon uh, literacy and a dedication and devotion to data that are second to none. I am uh, highly dependent on these, uh, on David Bonson's writings and the work of his uh, crack team uh, for uh, a deeper understanding of the macroeconomics and the macro politics of the United States, and you should be too. So the dctoday.com, dividendcafe.com, all this from the Bonson Group, the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and financial management industry. Um, so building back better. We need to build back better. And uh, we were we reminded again and again this weekend after the, uh, the signing of the coronavirus uh, bill, the nearly $2 trillion bill, that... Um, uh, Nobody uh, who looks at the uh, innards of the bill, both positively and negatively, is under any illusions that this bill was is actually dedicated to coronavirus relief or or any of that. This is a uh, and is treated as a transformative moment in American uh, political and economic history, in which the uh, the liberal left view of government's role in the economy 
uh, has uh, reemerged after more than a quarter century in which it has been, even during Obama's period in which it has been, let's say, not uh, not any any way in which it was being advanced aggressively that aggression was being couched and hidden in language that was much more along the lines of let the markets work and you know stuff like that than than now when we we basically have an absolutely unmitigated and uh and uh, an unmodulated claim that uh the purpose of this is to bring new kinds of help and aid directly from the federal government to individual households and households with children and households with disabilities and and direct federal uh, subventions of various industries and various, um, particularly industries in which the public sector is, is, is deeply invested. And, um, and I again ask whether the political moment... Um, whether this is a terrible overplaying of a hand politically because Biden won by four and a half points, but it was only four and a half points. He won 306 electoral votes. Well, that's the same number that Trump won in 2016. And he's got a five seat and the Democrats have a five seat margin in the house and they're tied in the Senate. And the last time you had transformative moves like this of this sort of nature was let's say Reagan in 81 and Reagan not only won by 10 points and won more than 400 electoral votes Republicans won 12 senate seats I mean like that was a transformative election in which the election itself said you better do what this guy wants because the public is behind him and so and you know and we've had this huge shift politically and he got the tax cuts, and it was a very big moment. Um, but Biden's not in that political moment. So what do we what do we make of this? I I, I throw it to you guys. Well, I have a question: Is the do you think that the 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 fact that they're not couching any of this in the language of sort of you know letting markets do what they want and whatever, um, and and that along with the fact that it, that this has been popular as far as we can tell so far among the public has the stigma gone from 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 that kind of spending you know uh, and on on social programs generally speaking is that is that is are we past that age where there's not where there's not a, a inherent stigma to to you know big government in that sense helped largely by the by the circumstances of the pandemic well, that's the. I guess that's the question. That's the. I mean, because the the results of the policy will will fall one way or the other, and it'll 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 be you know assessed as, as either a bad job or a good job. But I don't know that inherently people are Americans are are um are sort of repelled by this anymore. Well, I, I don't know that they are, or that there there are enough of them who aren't, and there probably there have been enough of them who weren't. Uh, this could be like a five, you know, this could be a five percent, five point difference. So if 30, 35 percent of the country like wants government intervention everywhere and 40 percent of the country would prefer not, you know, then you have this or uh, some small number of people in the middle who kind of shift around and 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 swing the teeter totter in one direction or the other. Um uh, they're probably up for grabs, right? I don't. I don't really know. Well, we we know we can we know we can't evaluate this sort of stuff ideologically because most voters are not ideological; they're much more practical. So, and we've long known that the public generally wants bigger, better public services and lower taxes. I mean, that's just what everybody wants, um, which is impractical as a pol- from a policymaking standard. And while Democrats are now talking about infrastructure spending to the tune of $4 trillion and uh, election overhauls and making unions mandatory and all this other wish list items coming down the pike now, according to Bloomberg's reporting, is tax hikes because we spent $5 trillion we don't have over the course of this year. So they're talking now about things like raising the corporate rate from, 28%, from 21 to 28%, um, pairing back business pass-throughs, raising the income tax rate on people making more than 400000 ballooning the estate tax, and making capital gains higher for people making a million dollars or a million dollars off cap gains. 
And all that will raise, according to the CBO, a what? No, I'm sorry. According to the Biden campaign's analysis, will raise a whopping $2.1 trillion over a decade. Again, we spent $5 trillion this year. We never had, or over the course of the last year, we never had. We need Elizabeth Warren's pennies again. Like, can she rub those two pennies? (laughs) It's not going to be sufficient to address any of these budget shortfalls. But it will be sufficient to reduce economic growth and to reduce businesses making capital investments and hiring. And that's the sort of thing that people eventually do feel. And so maybe once they get the get the idea that there are trade-offs associated with this broader public spending, that maybe the equation changes. Well, I, we know that uh, the Democrats are going to be marketing this not just as we rescued you, but as big, bad Republicans refused to help. You are all suffering. They didn't help. We helped. And in that sense, they think it's actually a boon that this whole thing went down in a completely partisan way. Right. This was not a bipartisan. This last relief bill was not bipartisan. But I do think there's an opportunity. And and I never underestimate the ability of you know, congressional Republicans to snatch defeat from the jaws of some sort of victorious messaging. But they they have an opportunity here, which is to relentlessly focus on how little is actually being handed out here in terms of COVID based relief and how much pork is in this bill. I mean, uh, the newly elected senator from Georgia, Senator Warnock, has been saying, I'm going to go around and say we did this for you and Republicans didn't want to help you. This is the same guy who is giving like half of the aid for that has been delegated for farmers to black farmers only. He's under there's going to be some some probably some lawsuits that emerge out of this in terms of whether that's constitutional, because black farmers are an extremely small minority among the minority of people who actually farm for a living. So there's all kinds of payoffs and interest groups, uh, you know, getting getting their their due here. And if Republicans can focus on that and on the likely tax increase that, that middle-class Americans are going to experience as a result of this, they might have a slight hope of messaging okay, something. So, so there's a piece in the New York Times, uh, I guess at the end of last week by Rachel M. Cohen, who was described as a freelance journalist who writes about politics and policy. And here's what she says. Last spring, as a poorly understood virus swept the planet, something remarkable happened across the country. All levels of government put in place policies that just a few months earlier would have been seen by most people, not to mention most politicians, as radical and politically naive. Nearly 70% of states ordered bans on utility shutoffs and more than half did so for evictions. Mayors authorized car-free streets to make cities safer for pedestrians. And the federal government nearly tripled the average unemployment benefit within weeks. State eliminated states eliminated extortionist medical copays for prisoners and scrapped bail. New Jersey passed a bill that released more than 2,200 incarcerated people all at once. The pandemic has been a long nightmare, but those were progressive pipe dreams turned reality. The arrival of the coronavirus forced American policymakers to admit that a new world wasn't just possible. It was necessary. Over the past several months, I've interviewed dozens of activists and policy professionals who have recounted stories of politics shifting quickly on issues they have worked on for years. Okay? So we have this basic admission by the activist left that this is the best thing that ever happened to them. And uh, it is. And it is a big bet because I guess where Abe is right in this circumstance is the policies are going to be the po- – we'll see what happens. Like as, as you know, if, if, if they can claim in any way proximity to an economic boom after the pandemic, uh, they can say, well, we did it and here it is and we were a large part of it and activist government – uh, worked. It worked. Uh, the whole problem with activist government from the Great Society onward was it didn't really look like it worked. They put in all these programs and inflation spiked and there had to be wage and price controls inter- in, you know, in, introduced. And all kinds of activist legislation ended up having unforeseen consequences in terms of social disorder and social decay that the the people who designed them and believed they were noble and wonderful did not have an answer to explain why these things that were supposed to solve problems were making more problems than they were solving. Um, But that's a long-term issue, and this is a short-term question, at least in terms of 2022 and 2024. 
also not a comprehensive analysis of the pandemic response. I mean, it's just one aspect of it. The broadened scope of federal government also allowed for unprecedented border closures. I'm pretty sure she's not a big fan of that. And you're also discounting the extent to which countless stupid regulations were just simply wiped off the books. Everything from pandemic, you know, uh, vaccine regulations and testing mandates to allowing you to take alcohol out of a out of a restaurant. All these things were just it just disappeared overnight by necessity. So a libertarian could make the same case about the libertarian moment of the pandemic if they were intellectually dishonest. Well, that would be uh, that would be an interesting that would be an interesting play. Um, and uh, I just want to spend a minute talking to you about the book I've been talking to you about all month. The Telling How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life by Mark Gerson, this guide to the Passover Seder and the Passover Haggadah, the the uh, remarkable uh, millennia-old volume that provides Jews with the uh, blueprint for how to run the annual Passover Seders and uh, embodies the lessons of Judaism um, st- uh, sort of uh, stem to stern um, in the course of its 15 sections and the uh, the order of the Seder. Mark has a, a many observations in the book, but here's just one I wanted to uh, share with you. From, from Lincoln to King, from Payne to Obama, from DeMille to Superman, from Tubman to Bush, from Franklin to the architect of the Capitol, these Americans show us just what the authors of the Haggadah meant when they said that the Exodus story is the reason that we are not subservient to a pharaoh today. The Exodus story has given us the language, the vision, the direction, and the moral ambition to resist any pharaoh and to construct a glorious alternative to him. The United States of America is simply the greatest Seder ever conducted. So this is among the many jewels of uh, wisdom and insight that you can get from the telling by Mark Gerson, reviewed in our April issue by Tevi Troy, which you will be able to read later today at CommentaryMagazine.com. And of course, you should buy the telling and get it ready. Uh, use it as the uh, as some of the give you a lot of ideas about what to do to make your seder uh, spicy and interesting this year. So, and thanks to Mark Gerson and the Telling for sponsoring the Commentary Magazine podcast. Um, okay, time to talk about our obsession, our our obsession that we're too obsessed with and we're so obsessed with uh, Andrew Cuomo. Um, so uh, as the number of people who are calling on him to resign grows and grows and grows, and now includes the Senate Majority Leader and the junior senator from New York, Kristen Gillibrand, uh, the mayor of New York City. Uh, I don't know how many, uh, 15 or 20 New York members of the New York congressional delegation, uh, all kinds of people in Albany, all of this, comes the story that... Uh, Andrew Cuomo sent out his uh, his uh, uber goon, uh, Larry Schwartz, who was his secretary and then served on various uh, committees, including the the MTA as Cuomo's, you know, uh, substitute representative goon um, uh, and is now the coronavirus uh, state goon, um, called around to county executives. There are, I don't know, I think there are 62 counties in in New York State, if I remember correctly, and he was calling around to county executives saying, uh, that's a nice county you got there. It would be a pity if something were to happen to the vir- to the vaccine relief distribution uh, there, you know, because uh, Governor Cuomo is calling around, just wants me to gauge the level of his support that he might be able to expect from you in this uh, time of trouble, and of course, I am calling you as the coronavirus czar and the vaccine czar. So, uh, what are you going to do about Cuomo and supporting him? Huh? What you going to do? Um, and this is Andrew Cuomo to a T. And uh, you know, I you know what that sounds like. What? Time for some traffic problems on the yeah. George Washington Bridge. That's exactly right. That was at least an endorse, right? Yeah, that was. Sure. It was an effort to get the mayor of Fort Lee to endorse uh, Governor Christie's re-election bid in 2013, 2012 and a half. Right. 
And then when he wouldn't do it, the weirdest part about this is that they they made they made the they made the traffic trouble for him in Fort Lee. But of course, they could never say, you know what, we're making traffic trouble for you in Fort Lee, so you better change your because they knew that that so they did it after there was nothing that they could do about it. Like it was like they were taking revenge on him, but it's not like he was going to switch his endorsement out, you know, it's, which is another reason why it was so spectacularly stupid, a gambit. Um, but even so, yeah, it's like that only of course, um, traffic is uh, very, very annoying. And we all know that, although I guess one death was attributed to the traffic jam in Fort Lee, somebody whose ambulance couldn't get to the hospital in time. But I mean, we're talking here about vaccine distribution. Um, and everybody knows that if somebody from uh, Andrew Cuomo's office calls uh, speaking in that tone, that his intent is to make sure that people die under your watch if you don't do what, what he wants. Since it's apparently perfectly fine for him for people to die on his watch uh, uh, and cover up the deaths and all of this. So how much more, how, how many more contemptible uh, things can he do, do you think? I mean, is there a limit to the number of contemptible things he can do? Not as long as he's the sole arbiter of what is contemptible and what's not. When this is taken out of his hands in the form of uh, maybe an impeachment inquiry or a prosecution, then we're talking about something else. But for now, it's just, uh, you know, moral suasion, which doesn't seem sufficient for this character. Well, I mean, that's the interesting problem of the present moment, which is that... um, we we don't have a system for a disgrace and exile. Let's put it this way: like one of the reasons that a politician in uh, in a previous era would have quit and run would be that the pressure was intolerable, and that the one thing they could see was at least somehow the pressure could end. Like I can't live like this. The only thing I can change is my status. So I'm gonna. I'm going to resign because then at least the jackhammer will stop hammering on my head. But nobody, the jackhammer never stops anymore. Also, Uh, in fact, it may, may be worse. So that's another quality. I think that Cuomo has in common with Trump, which is this, um, the sort of, when you're facing a huge opposition globally and mounting crisis on, and on every front, um, just um, pushing forward regardless, you know, not not and uh, not not backing down no matter what. That is that is you know, the the, the jackhammer doesn't doesn't stop either of them. It it sort of you know in, inspires them or something. Well, we underestimate how how much shamelessness, both in political culture and celebrity culture, is actually now a benefit to those who are willing to push it to its maximum limits. Right? We saw this with Trump, and shamelessness sells. It sells for politicians. I mean, the ca- the cable news media loves it because it gives them endless content. Um, and and the only reason we're not seeing that pressure brought to bear on Cuomo is that he happens to have a D after his name, not an R. But shamelessness is a new. You know, there there are unfortunately far too many people in in American culture right now who understand its power. Uh, if you cannot be shamed, then you can get away with a whole lot before you're finally brought down. Yeah, you know, we've talked about this before, about the, the Governor Northam, Ralph Northam example. And as I recall, during that period, that if when everybody was calling on him to resign, Democratic candidates, Democratic lawmakers, you know, presidential candidates, it was an issue. And um, I recall, I don't can't remember, remember who the quote was from. It was an unattributed quote from people close to him, that if he was to resign amid those circumstances, he would enshrine himself as a racist for all his history. He would never be able to live that down. And at least if he stayed in office, there was the potential to move past the scandal and find some sort of redemptive arc. Uh, similarly, Andrew Cuomo, if he were to resign, would be uh, casting himself as a lecher for all time with the without the possibility of redemption or forgiveness. Because the very same people who are calling for his head now have eliminated that possibility from our society, that forgiveness, redemption, magnanimity are not virtues today. Well, you know, I, I got to think that um, no one will ever resign or step out of a race for harassment issues again, right? This this is a me too moment or not. This is it. If you can, if you if you come up against this this many accusers, this much scandal, this kind of you, your own party, 
uh, and you are in su- you are such a national political figure, and you're still not stepping away. No one ever will in the future. Right. You know, guys, uh, when running a business, HR issues can kill you. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations. I'm not connecting this in any way, shape, or form to the topic that we were just discussing. But, you know, HR manager salaries aren't cheap, an average of $70,000 a year. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business. You can get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. From onboarding to terminations, they customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day, all for just $99 a month, month-to-month, no hidden fees, cancel anytime. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time in HR compliance. Let Bambi help. Get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash commentary right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash commentary um so a little uh cultural news uh just before we came on uh the oscar nominations for the weirdest year in uh, american motion picture history uh came out and i i just want to uh play profit here because it happened about 15 minutes before and um here's what happened that we are now going to hear about for two months which is that um uh, there are like nine uh, Best Picture nominees, and only one of them could be categorized as a work that uh, tries to deal with the subject of white supremacy and uh, and the, the politics of our time, even though it's set in 1971, which is Judas and the Black Messiah. The uh, I haven't seen it yet, but apparently a highly propagandistic uh, examination of the life and death of Fred Hampton, a Black Panther who... Um, who uh, was uh, killed at the age of 21 in a shootout with police, but is nonetheless treated as though he literally were the Black Messiah by this by this movie. A whole bunch of other ones, uh, sort of that also you know sort of evoke uh, BLM subjects, even though they are not necessarily about the subject at hand. Like One Night in Miami, which is this portrait of. Uh, Cassius Clay, Malcolm X, Sam Cooke, and one other person. Uh, Jim uh, Brown. Jim Brown, thank you. Uh, all spending an evening together in Miami, directed by the Oscar and Emmy-winning actress Regina King, who was expecting an Oscar nomination and did not get one. Uh, the directors, uh, there is no black director among the those nominated. And so... Um, Here's what we're going to hear. Hollywood, white supremacists. They're all white supremacists. And in the end, you can do this and you can do it. But basically, if the, if the Motion Picture Academy is not 50% African-American by next September, uh, you know, it will be evil. So that's my prediction. It is now, as we speak, it's 10 a.m. on Monday morning. And I, we've been on the podcast, so I haven't been able to check the insta reactions but i presume that these are the the insta reactions i mean but this would occur after the imposition of certain diversity standards by the motion picture academy in september of 2020 right isn't that amazing the lead has to be there has to be at least one lead of of color there has to be a general ensemble cast 30% of the actors have to have, have be minorities uh, Storyline and subject matter year. have to have certain. But that standards. starts next year. It doesn't oh, start. Okay, this so year. they're just getting getting all the racism in while they can. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I think that's 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 entirely fair. By the way, it's like uh, there. Are, I think there are two or three female female. Uh, there are three female best director nominees. So that's there's an interesting question. Like, will the fact that the director of Promising Young Woman, Emerald Fennell, the director of uh, Nomadland, Chloe Zhao. And I think there's one other. I can't remember who. Does that outweigh the fact that there are no black nominees? Or does that not matter? Because Regina King is both black and female and didn't get nominated. Ergo, not only white supremacy, but misogyny. Misogynistic white supremacy. Or uh, racist misogyny. I, I I don't know. 
I don't know which entire. My bingo I, card is full. I can't. I like. I just. I can't. And I have to. I really would encourage our listeners if they have, if they read the Atlantic, to actually read. Connor Friedsdorf has written a really interesting article because uh, we on this podcast have often uh, pleaded for people to make a, a to distinguish between the phrase "Black Lives Matter," which obviously means. Black people should be treated with respect, obvious. And the movement, capital BLM, Black Lives Matter. And Connor's written an interesting piece about how th- this is now entering um, the Black Lives Matter in schools, has now has a curriculum. And he took a close look at it. And boy, is it not what you want your kids to be reading. Unless you want your kids to grow up to be radical Marxist, you know, uh, race warriors, then actually going to be really happy. But again, I think that it, it, it touches on some of these themes, which is if everything is cast in this lens of race, uh, we're going to have very different arguments about quality and quantity when it comes to what's produced culturally. And we're going to have a lot of pitch battles about what should be being taught to kids in schools. Uh, we saw the 1619 Project. This is another front in that ongoing broader war, I think. And it is a battle. I don't think it's it's I, I'm not trying to be too hyperbolic here, but this stuff is in in your kids schools and you should know what they're teaching. You should get the books and read them. And it's pretty shocking. So look, let there be no doubt, you guys, big tech is trying to suppress free speech they don't agree with. So why exactly are we choosing to give these big tech companies all of our personal data? The lines have been drawn. Big tech has made it clear which side they're on. Now is the time to take a stand. Protect your personal data from big tech with the VPN I trust for my online protection. ExpressVPN. When I use it, my connection gets rerouted through their secure encrypted servers So these companies can't see my IP address at all. My internet activity becomes anonymized. My network data is encrypted. And the best part is you don't need to be tech savvy at all to use ExpressVPN. Just download the app on your phone or computer, tap one button, and you're protected. So stop handing over your data to big tech companies whose aim is to censor you and spy on you. Use the VPN I use every day. Visit expressvpn.com slash commentary. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN.com slash commentary to get three extra months free go to expressvpn.com and Terry right now to learn more um so we're uh we're gonna we're gonna say say goodbye uh but if anybody has any important things that you want to get off your chest before we go uh on this on the ides of march oh anything you uh, need to beware um <clears throat> i guess it's not absolutely critical but while we're dumping all over Andrew Cuomo, I think I should dump all over the other star of the pandemic, whose star has faded pretty dramatically, um, California Governor Gavin Newsom. Um, the recall petition against him has gotten its two million signatures. The Sacramento is going to do everything it possibly can to invalidate those signatures, but they still have some weeks more coming. He probably will face a recall petition at this point. And uh, Emerson, next star, has a poll out showing Californians approve of Gavin Newsom's performance to the tune of 55% to 44%, which is statistically negligible, obviously, and oppose recalling him by 42% to 38%. Um, Those are not good numbers for this governor. And if he does face a recall petition, Republicans are going to have a a serious uh, moment of introspection because they're going to have to find somebody to replace him. And all the pressure on the California Republican Party is the same pressure on every other Republican Party, which is to be more populist, more Trumpy than probably the electorate of California would appreciate. So they have a real opportunity here um, if they don't blow it. You know, the, 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 the recall election in 2003, where uh, Gray Davis was recalled and Arnold Schwarzenegger ended up as as governor, that race to succeed Gray Davis was the first real glimpse that we had of the cartoonish quality that uh, primaries were going to start taking uh, in, 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 in sort of the wake of that, that was where it was like Ariana Huffington and, and Arnold. And I can't remember like uh, literally 15 other people and it was just sort of like Ariana saying, Arnold, you are so terrible to people on your sets. And he's like, oh, Ariana, you are so hilarious. You know, like that, this kind of preposterous comedy. And then, you know, it was we were only a few short years away from, I don't know, 999 and uh, uh, just that ridiculous Republican setup. And then the 2012 ridiculous Republican setup. 
and uh, you know, leading to you know Marianne Williamson in 2016, and I don't even remember who in 2020, and and all of that. And so uh, California once again led the way in revealing the horrible nature of our our, our politics, and uh, maybe this will too. So with that, we will say goodbye and uh, go to commentarymagazine.com later today for the goods and services of our April issue. And you should subscribe if you haven't already subscribed. And we have some more merch, some new merch. Like I mentioned, we got uh, we got the women's tees. Go look at them at merch.commentarymagazine.com and see if you might want to get one for the loved one in your life. For Christine, Noah, and Abe, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.